Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am excited to be here with Dr. Ruth Hobson, where we are going to be talking about breast cancer and a functional approach to laboratory assessment and so much more. Let me tell you a little bit about her and we will jump right in. Uh, Dr. Hobson is a practicing naturopathic physician uh, and she is also a doctor in clinical education department at Doctors Data. She received her bachelor's from Brevard College in health science studies with a minor in biology and chemistry. She trained as a GP at NUNM, my alma mater, tailoring her studies to focus on women's health and pediatrics. She currently splits her time between consulting and educating at Doctors Data in their clinical education department and her own private practice where she focuses on hormone health and aesthetics. Uh, she's utilized her expertise in both research and patient care to develop curriculums for webinars, conferences, podcasts throughout the U.S., focusing on hormone metabolism and optimization. She also, I should add, um, completed a residency at NUNM as, as well, uh, teaching and and primary care residency. Uh, Dr. Hudson, welcome to New Frontiers. Hi, thanks for having me. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be a, a you know information-packed podcast. And again, a topic we haven't had here on the show in a while. So I'm so, so glad that we're bringing it back. Um, breast cancer is multifactorial and we need to cast a wide net uh, to address as many possible risk factors as we can. Uh, talk to me about that. What do we need to be paying attention in all of our patients? And maybe a little focus on what we need to be paying in our ten attention to in our patients with established breast cancer. Yeah, so perfect. Um, first, let's start with things that we think of risk factors that are outside of our control, right? There are things that come up in patient populations. And when you're screening, you know, you're going through your intake forms or you're you're thinking about patients. Um, those are going to be like, maybe they don't have breast cancer. Maybe these patients do have breast cancer. This is going to fall into the, the category of just assessing some risk, right? So non-modifiable risk factors, age is going to come up. So most breast cancer is diagnosed in the um, postmenopausal female. Men are, you know, also diagnosed and I would say also later in age as well. But, you know, the age 50, well, typically you'll see that that is when most cancers are, are diagnosed. Do we see that before? Absolutely. But this is just something that's going to come up. Um, also, you know, females more than males um, are typically going to be diagnosed. Um, race and ethnicity, we'll see that come up as well. Um, I would say Caucasian uh, females tend to have higher incidence of breast cancer. And we can also see there are other populations that have more higher mortality would come up in that too. Height is an interesting one, but the taller stature is going to come into play here. And I, and I think that's more, you know, it's about five, nine or higher. Um, it could be more also tied to bone density. So higher your bone mineral density. Um, interestingly, you'll see a more increase in breast cancer risk. Why is that? Why is that? Yeah. It, are postulating, right? We think that that has to do with more estrogens that we're seeing from, you know, bone, bone mineral density. So the higher bone mineral density, and this isn't hmm. going to be, I will, I will say this is going to be, um, high impact bone mineral density. This is greater than what you would typically see as the norm. Um, 
There's also some genetic mutations. I know people are pretty familiar with BRCA1, me, BRCA2. Actually, let me just circle back to that. You, and yeah. then let's go on to genetic mutations. Yeah. So, so very um, good bone density in a postmenopausal tall woman might be a flag for somebody to suggest that they've just got more active estrogens. Absolutely. So those estrogen receptors um, are going to be things that we will think about are more like the targets for breast cancer. Um, and that's why it's the risk, right? It's more estrogen receptors, receptors. when we compound those factors. Yes. All right. I want to circle back and talk to you because this is, you know, where I'm going in my brain and I know the listeners will be is you know, what about using hormone replacement therapy and estrogen, which, you know, one of the perks of that is improved bone density. And of course it's been, I think, turned upside down that there's a risk associated with that. So we don't have to, we don't have to go down that conversation now, but let's return oh, we'll to, to HRT. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. think that's yeah. conversation. Okay. Sure. So we've got a pin in that. Everybody yeah. assure us that, that <laughs> we, we will definitely come back. I have a note here on my uh, on my sheet and then, but let's move into mutations. Cause that's where you were going. Yeah. So you know, most people are familiar with BRCA1 and BRCA2. You'll see there is genetic increased risk for breast cancer specifically. Let's also remind ourselves that there is also risk for other cancers that are involved with those two mutations. Um, and it's really the mutation in DNA repair. Right. And that, yeah. let's think about that as we, as we move through. Um, and we can also have conversations about that because when we think about the genetic component here, it's, it's not the number one thing that I think it's a of pretty minor player. I think yeah. when you really look at it, when you tease it out, I mean, what, Absolutely. maybe 25% might have a genetic association and of that less than half are BRCA associated. Exactly. And then we could, I mean, that's going to, that opens up a whole communication we can talk about too, but does having a gene mean that we are necessarily set up for that? Um, you know, well, we can, we can dive into that too. Yeah, we should. Well, we should. I mean, I know, I mean, you and I were talking, you know, that I have a background in doing research on, on DNA methylation and, um, uh, the BRCA, the BRCA gene can be turned off via methylation. So there's no genetic mutation. There's an environmental influence that will turn off this all important, you know, DNA repair gene. But the other thing that's pretty interesting too, is that we know that the incidence of BRCA associated cancers was way, way, way lower, you know, in the like 1930s, 40s, 50s, et cetera, the incidence was way lower. So clearly there's an environment, there's the, the, the influence is like more environmental. I think even when you have these genetic mutations. Absolutely. Um, and that's what we have to think of as, as um, you know, healthcare practitioners that are kind of thinking outside the box, right? We need to come from different angles. Um, I think there's a lot of fear. There's a, a ton of fear around breast cancer, breast health in general, yeah. you know, some of it warranted. Yeah. When you get a cancer diagnosis, absolutely. That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we can step back and kind of tease out things that we might be able to have some control over. Talk about those. Yeah. So we're going to think about not being physically active, right? Mm -hmm. Women who are not busy, physically active have a higher risk of getting breast cancer in general. We, we know this. We know that being overweight or even having obesity in menopause. So those older women 
who are obese, they have a higher risk. Now that's likely due to some aromatase activity. We're going to dive into that as well. Um, but, you know, these are going to be foundational lifestyle factors, right? We, we have control over these things. Um, can we snap our fingers and be, get better right away? No, but can we make progress? Absolutely. Um, the other thing, and we're going to touch on this is higher endogenous estrogens and androgen levels. I think most people are familiar with estrogen levels, but I will break down uh, why androgen levels can also uh, play a part in that. And then of course, taking hormones. Uh, we think about, you know, women that are taking hormone replacement therapy, you know, estrogen therapy, again, for bone health, do we have other risk factors we should be thinking of? Absolutely. But I also think about our um, younger population, you know, think about birth control, that's estrogen and progestin. You know, are we setting up our younger um, female population for breast cancer in the future? Possibly. Um Again, we have to look at the individual in front of us and kind of stratify risk for them. So the synthetic, I just, this it's the synthetic progestins. Actually, yeah. the synthetic estrogens are, are, you know, potentially there as well um, that are the problem. Absolutely. And it's the combination of the two. Yeah. Come together. Yeah. And we saw that in the Women's Health Initiative and, um, you know, that's yes. kind of been taken forward. We, we know this, but I still, I don't know about you, but we, I still see people in my practice on, you know, conjugated equine estrogen therapy and it drives me crazy, but it's out there. Um, so understanding risk and taking those steps for your patients is going to be really important. I think also, and I, because I, you know, again, just we're, we're talking to practitioners in this, um, audience and we're talking to, you know, really savvy, um, you know, non-practitioners. And I think the Women's Health Initiative has been really the the interpretation of that data set has just been, you know, roundly criticized. And, you know, they should have stratified, you know, much more carefully what they were seeing and who was actually at risk um, and what they were doing. So I think we've moved past the era and tell me if you agree or not, that HRT is uh, a problem. Depending. I think yep. when we look at HRT, sure. it might be route. I should say bioidentical HRT yeah. and, you know, taking into consideration history. Yeah. I think bioidentical replacement, um, again, route of administration, I think some taking in risk factors, you know, we have to be, there is no, um, ACOG is not going to agree with anyone that has breast cancer taking hormones, right? So we mm -hmm. really have to think about this as practitioners. Um, but you have a peri postmenopausal female somewhere in that window with a, lots of vaginal dryness. Are we going to withhold estriol or those types of things from her? Like, you know, th those are conversations to have. And, and for me, absolutely mm -hmm. not. I, I think, you know, vaginal hormones have been shown to be less systemic, um, we'll say that, than other estrogens. And so we can think about, you know, is it a route administration issue that we have, have seen 
typically we're swallowing estrogens or that's what was seen in the, in the data and in the literature. There's very few studies on bioidentical topical hormones, um, at least large case studies that we can follow. So I think when it comes to HRT um, and women's health in general, we're still kind of in the dark ages. You know, we, we don't know still enough about what we can do um, as far as giving hormones and then also mitigating risk. Um, there's a window, you know, we kind of think about this 10 year postmenopausal window for safety that we got from the Women's Health Initiative. And um, I will tread lightly with that in my practice, but there are, there are outliers that I will say um, also, you know, as we're thinking about, you know, estrogens alone, I would say I'm typically giving progesterone for that balance. So, you know, just cluing in and keying in on, on what we can do as far as um, helping maintain balance, not increasing risk for our patients. And it's going to be very individualized once you start to do this kind of medicine, as, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, I mean, and we also see, I want to keep going because we need to talk about, you know, how we're going to cast a wide net here, but I just want to say that we look at, uh, HRT and the benefits with brain health, you know, with cardiovascular health. I mean, we see a pro-aging effect when our estrogens, you know, when we hit menopause, you know, women kind of catch up with men and we can measure bio, you know, bi biological age now, which is something that I'm focused on. And, you know, we see that, you know, that happen when women hit, hit menopause, they just move forward at an accelerated aging rate, um, potentially. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. It's, it's a conversation that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about and having a lot these days. Um, so it's the individual sitting in front of us. Uh, what, let me see, what do we want to, what are foundational tests that you're going to be doing? You can talk about standard labs if you want to, but, um, We've pulled together, a, we've taken a great history. We've identified what we think are potential risk factors. Um, we're either doing prevention or we're working with somebody who's got cancer or a history of cancer. You know, what are we going to look at with labs? Yeah, I think, you know what, I tend to let risk factors that I've gathered from, you know, history taking kind of lead me in that direction. So for that, I kind of think obviously hormones, right? I want to see what's happening at the hormone level. Um, you know, I am a practitioner who also works in clinical education at Doctors Data. So I am utilizing their testing, their vast catalog. It's it's great for me, but I there, there are two options that kind of come to mind. And we can talk about which who who's a better fit for that and, and yeah. what that looks like. Let's but, talk about it. Yeah. Um, when we think about hormone testing, salivary hormone testing is an option. We also have urinary metabolite testing. Now I will say, is there one that's better than the other? That typically comes up in my mind. And really it's, what am I trying to address? Like, what do I want to see? Um, if I'm utilizing saliva testing, I think, okay, well, this will give me what's happening at the tissue level. I can see elevations of, you know, estrone, estradiol, where's my estriol marker. And, and why that's important um, is that, you know, E1 and E2, they have a lot of affinity for that estrogen receptor. And remember again, we were talking, you know, estrogen receptor um, is indicated in breast cancer risk, right? So I wanna see how much how much we have there. Are they at normal levels? Are they really high? Um, they could also be really low. And that's, again, where HRT, we do have those thoughts that are kind of in the back of our mind. 
Um, and then estriol, thought of as a more protective estrogen. It's not really proliferative. It's kind of a weak, and when it's competing for that estrogen receptor, um, but it also has, you know, potential um, protection benefits as, you know, and thought of as like an anti-estrogen. So, um, and interestingly, vaginal dryness, we can use it for vaginal dryness and we don't see, you know, it raising levels of E1 and E2. So it seems to be more of a safer bet. So I will utilize this when I have someone who maybe has a family history of breast cancer or um, maybe is thinking, you know, I've had breast cancer in the past and I am five-year survival, right? And I am just really nervous about estrogens. They have these complaints coming up. I'll think about estriol. I will. I I have no hesitation in, in that at all. Um, the other things to consider when we think about saliva is I like to look at my level of estradiol to progesterone. You know, I think of these as kind of best friends and on a little seesaw where they, you know, we have some estrogens going to promote growth and we have progesterone who's going to kind of help with differentiation. Now, when we think about cancer in general, there's ER, PR positive, right, cancer. So we, we'll see estrogen and progesterone can work to grow tissues together. Um, I like to see what's happening endogenously to say, do we have an imbalance? Is there way more estrogen than there is progesterone? Um, or are we, are we really deficient in progesterone? Are we creating these estrogen dominant symptoms? And you can see that, um, think about the, the postmenopausal female hot flashes. Plyometric symptoms are pretty easy to kind of think about estrogen dominance, but you'll also think about mood instability and those types of things. And so I, I like to see if we have this, this functional ratio, where is it? And if I'm thinking about hormones, I tend to do topical hormones. Again, I want to avoid swallowing hormones. I, you know, yes, I do patches. I don't, um, I'm not a huge fan of pellets and, um, and, and the only reason is if you get it wrong, you got to write them out. So, um, and I'm yeah. want to assess levels and saliva is where I can actually look and find that. So what um, about, what about oral progesterone? You don't use oral progesterone. Yeah, I, I will use oral progesterone. Um, if I get a patient who has some history, let's say it's uterus, um, I'm going to want to give oral progesterone, one, because it mitigates risk. We see that in the, in the research as far as proliferation of the endometrium. So I'm, all, I'm not only just thinking about breast health, right? We multiple, multiple organ systems here. I want to protect that endometrium. Um, so I'll give, I'll give some, I also will give it to female patients that maybe we have, um, issues with sleep because we see that it's metabolized to allopregnanolone, which has those really nice GABA-like sleepy effects that we can get. And so it's, it can be a really beautiful treatment for a lot of women. Yeah. So I would say caveat swallowing estrogens is, and, and testosterone, that's just not something that I will do, but progesterone, I feel um, okay with. Yeah. Even in your breast cancer patients or where, yeah. Where are you at with that? Yeah. Um, so I typically am seeing active breast cancer patients. If I will work with oncology that has never I've never had an oncologist say, yeah, go ahead with hormones. So we're typically waiting until they've at least completed course or we see that there's no growth. Um, but I will say survivor, you know, you've made it to your five year. We're at, we're at this mark. I don't have an issue with it. Most um, healthcare practitioners are also following up with oncology. We are doing 
labs, we're making sure things are healthy, we're looking at tissues. Um, so I think as long as we're being smart about it and we we know there's an increased risk, I think we can do hormone therapy in a safe way. Safely, yeah. Okay, so then leapfrogging there, you talked about saliva. What about, and so you're using urine hormones? Like, let's keep talking about the labs. Oh, yeah. So when we think about urinary testing, so urinary hormone and... um I would say, gosh, have you seen in the past like eight to 10 years really exploded, not only in, in the labs that, that are available, but also the research. So that's been incredible to watch. Um, I love urinary testing because it allows me to see what's happening with the hormones as they're moving through the body. So I'm not usually utilizing it for necessarily establishing if we need hormones or if I'm going to do hormones, I'm looking at what is your metabolism? What's the risk? What's happening there? And it's also helpful if you have patients that come in, you know, I have some, again, five-year survivor patients who have already hormone replacement therapy that maybe they want me to take over or assess. I can utilize this to see, is it safe? Are, are we at a point where we think these things are safe? It's really cutting edge. I, I enjoy that this is where medicine is going. Um, I, you know, we'll see about estrogen metabolisms in general, right? Because we're still, we're still in this era. We can think about how do we have these endogenous estrogens? You know, where, where are they coming from? So besides E1 and E2, I will say, let's think about their metabolites, because mm-hmm. their metabolites actually have action within the body. Not all of them. Right. But there you will see action within the body. And um, you know, I think let's just think about the two, the the three main ones that we the two, the four, and the sixteen. So two OH, and that's gonna be um hydroxylated metabolism of E1 and E2. So we'll talk about that. Um I love seeing those E2 metabolites. See, those are actually as um, harmful or not harmful as E1. Um, so it's nice that you can kind of get both of those. Um, let me just, let me just, let me just, um, define your abbreviations. So E1 or estrone and estradiol Mm -hmm. or E2 are being converted. One of their metabolites is two hydroxy estrone or estradiol, whatever the, yeah. Okay. So, so you're talking about that. You're looking at two hydroxy, um, the two hydroxy estrogens, yeah. Mm-hmm. And those are typically considered safer, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're considered safer is they're considered they don't really have estrogenic activity. In fact, they might be anti-estrogen. Um, is, that their, is that their protective? Is that the protective me- mechanism? Is that they're a little bit anti-estrogen? Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And then we have 16 and 16 uh, OHE1, right? So 16 hydroxyestrone. Um, this one is sort of a gray area as far as its ability to in, in, infer risk. And it might also be age dependent. So yeah. for 16, we see in the premenopausal female, you know, 16 OH seems to impact breast health and it can be in the, in the negative, right? It does 16 OH is a, um, as is estrogenic, not as estrogenic as estradiol, but has a, it's lower bonding affinity to that estrogen receptor, but it does bind. Um, and so we see, you know, premenopausal breast health kind of becomes the the concern there. So if and they're the- dumping a lot, if they're metabolizing aggressively towards that 16 hydroxy hydroxyestrone in a premenopausal woman, that's going to 
that's going to grab your attention to do something about. Absolutely going to grab my attention. And that might be the cause of their complaints if they have like the estrogen dominant kind of collection of symptoms. It could be that metabolite. In fact, you might even look at the estrogens themselves and they're not remarkable. And then you're like, and you, you do a metabolite panel and you see that and boom. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's just like light bulb. Yeah. The cool thing about, I'll bring up why 16 is, is kind of gray area for me, at least is when you look at the postmenopausal female, 16 OH is really important for bone health. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and again, it's because it binds the estrogen receptor, right? Yeah. So what I don't want to do in my postmenopausal female is see that try to drive it. it I'm not going to drive it low, even if it's low range or within range. I'm happy because they they need all the help that they can get um, as far as, you know, maturity, new fall risk and break um, become really um, devastating to women as we get older. So anything we can preserve bones is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So premenopause, we want it. We want, we want it low postmenopause. We may want to maintain it if it's present. Can you actually encourage, do, do you ever think about in your postmenopausal, especially your osteoporotic population, actually encouraging production of 16 hydroxyestrone? You know, a, a great way to do that is giving a little bit of, um, estradiol, estriol biased, something in that way. And it, will increase. You'll, you'll It'll see that. Increase it. So that's how you would do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, there are things like vitamin D fatty acids. Those, those go into play as far as helping that enzyme activity work. Um, hmm. it's, I'll just give you the names. CYP3A4 is going to be the enzyme that we kind of target for 16 OH. And that's going to be, um, you know, you can even use things like valerian. There's valerian research in there. So oh. Yeah. A little um, sleep aid. Uh-huh. St. John actually very <laughs> indirectly help with help with bone <laughs> density in our postmenopausal and also give them a little bit of a hit of estrogen, which can help with other, you know, plenty of other issues. Yeah. That's- oh, that's interesting. Wow. I haven't tried that. Good. That's yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. <laughs> Get some good sleep and, you know, in help with bone density among other things. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. And there's also, you know, we're thinking about the more harmful and this, a lot of attention has been given to four hydroxy estrone and estradiol. And those, you know, we'll typically think of those four hydroxy metabolites as um, more proliferative. Um, I will even use things like genotoxic carcinogenic potential. I really hate to say cancer uh, when I'm with patients, but those things can- but genotoxic, yeah. It's genotoxic, right? And um, that's beyond- breast cancer. Is that correct? Because of the mechanism, it's not exerting necessarily an estrogenic effect. It's genotoxic. It's It's like damaging DNA. Yeah. And, and it does have to do with how much we have. Right. Um, and, and is it metabolizing appropriately through? So as 4-OH by itself, it has potential. And then the next step, we can talk about um, methylation and yeah. or COMT. It will kind of move into that. Um, the next step, if it's missing, 4-OH has a potential to then move forward and, and create what we will call quinones and semiquinones. But I often think about those as our, those are just DNA damagers, right? Where we're just leading to more 
redux reactions and and things that are going to take place in that way. So if you have a bunch of four hydroxy and you're not appropriately methylating it, then you're vulnerable to damaging DNA. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, we're specifically talking about breast health. I think anytime we talk about damaging DNA, this is going to be not just in these little breast genes, right? We're, we're potentially causing it in other areas as well. Yeah. I think that's a important point to underline and why it's, you know, it's a reasonable idea for us to be looking at these metabolites in, in men, I mean, men of estrogen, you know, and some men more than others. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a man with a lot of inflammation, you're going to be moving your testosterone to estrogens. And I know we're going to, we're going to talk about that, but yeah, I think having some of this data on men could really be important. What do you do about that when you see somebody with a lot of 4-hydroxyestrone? Yeah, so I will say it's always the conversation, right? Like, do we attack diet? Do we think, you know, first about giving some supplementation? Um, I, I tend to do a little combination of both. But one thing I, I do have um, kind of this lifestyle risk factors in my mind. So things like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PCBs, you mentioned inflammation for sure. Um, UV exposure. Um, and I don't mean just like a little bit, I mean, like, like farm workers, like think about like, I've been out a lot, or I'm an avid gardener. I've been doing it for 20 plus years and I wear a hat, but not sunscreen. Like there are things to be thinking about there. Um, all of that is going to upregulate CYP1B1. And that enzyme is what is going to increase our four. And so right there, if we can just take a little lifestyle review and think, are there things that we could take out? Are there things we could, you know, switch or replace or habits we can change? I think that's, that's generally where I like to, to start. Uh, most, I'll say most practitioners currently, you know, we think about um, utilizing things like DIM, because um, DIM can help raise the two, which is considered safer um, and, you know, move metabolism more in that way. Uh, but I also think we should look at um, resveratrol. Uh, there's a lot of interesting research in resveratrol. And, you know, what I loved about, you know, finding this research um, was it really changed the way I kind of looked at my practice. And there was a study that came out in 2019 um, in the publication Nutrients. And it was looking at just metabolic health and obesity. So not even not even breast cancer. Um, but when we think, again, when we think about some of those risk factors, it sounds very similar, doesn't it? It's like not moving our body, mm -hmm. you know, high insulin, yeah. inflammation. Um, and, and what they found was specifically looking at urinary metabolites is that Resveratrol has the ability to upregulate 1A1. So that's two. That's our two pathway. Mm -hmm. It also can help downregulate our CYP1B1. So that's our four. So we can downregulate how, how much is going through if you want to use it in that way. And then we can also think, um, we mentioned semiquinones, quinones. We're going to get there when next step, but it can also increase semiquinone reductase. So that mechanism, you think about that enzyme happening, it's going to decrease the amount of semiquinones we're making and also be protective against genotoxic uh, potential down, down the road. Awesome. So I, I love resveratrol. And when we're kind of thinking about metabolism, you know, I, 
I think most people's go-to is DIM, and that would be more just straight focused on, or IC3, indole-3-carbinol. And that's great because it can help increase too. Um, but, you know, what if two is high or, or, or within range, upper range? Um, and then what? Well, just hydroxylating, I should say, just that act of taking estrone and estradiol into that 2OH pathway, just hydroxylating, that creates a little bit of these like non-paired electrons, right? So do I want also, even though safer, do I want the two to be really high or do I want to shove everything over because I'm worried about the four? And I would say, I don't think that in, in medicine or just in life in general, that makes a lot of sense to just keep piling on one. So I think we need to also think about other areas where we might kind of dive in and can we use them together? Absolutely. Absolutely. So a combination to manipulate the, the production of four hydroxyesterone as well as the two hydroxyestrogens is going to be an intervention for you and resveratrol is a go-to, but you're probably using DIM, I'm, I'm assuming, and, and or yeah. I3C as well. You know, I want to go back and ask you, we talked about promoting 16 hydroxyestrone, but what about inhibiting it? So you've got a premenopausal woman, you don't want to have a bunch of 16. Uh, what are you going to do for that person for the, the CYP3A4? So this is complicated because of the enzyme that utilizes for metabolism. It also affects estriol, right? So are more protective. Mm. So I tend to go lifestyle modifications first. Um, and that would be like, could we think about adjusting and, you know, is someone smoking? Are they, do they have aflatoxin exposure? Are they insulin resistant? Those are the things I'll kind of I'll look at in, in that way. Are we doing HRT? Um, Cause that could add to estrogens that are the metabolizing and maybe we're favoring this enzyme. Um, I also, you know, endogenously, we think about, let's think about xenobiotics. So there's all those things that I will touch on mm -hmm. um, before I, uh, see those levels really make a big, a big shift. So it's usually I'm, I'm working above, I'm working the step above. Okay. Because if you inhibit the 16 hydroxyesterone production, the, that metabolite, you might negatively impact estriol E3. Yes. And so yes. you want to avoid that. So if you work upstream mm -hmm. and just sort of optimize estrogen production in general, Yes. You may be able to balance out 16. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you, you know, just thinking about inflammation, driving increased production and imbalance of estrogens, doing that piece alone could go a very long way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about glutathione? Are you using glutathione? in there at all? I see that, you know, it's something that a lot of folks are thinking about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, um, you know, interestingly, NAC, well, so precursor, mm -hmm. um, it has similar effects as resveratrol. So yes, I'm using it. Um, if you know, it's in certain formulas, you can get it, uh, still, we still have access to it. Um, yeah. I would say the only thing it doesn't tend to do, so it does have the same two mechanism, upregulate two, downregulate four. It doesn't seem to upregulate semiquinone, semiquinone reductase. So 
while I'll still use it, it's um, maybe someone who is a great methylator, you know, someone who maybe has a really high four, but they are the next step. And we can, we can kind of talk about that, but to inactivate our more harmful metabolites, we'll think about methylation. So COMT um, specifically here, and, and we'll think about its action there. But once we can methylate these harmful metabolites, they get to leave the body and they aren't reactive. Once they're methylated, they're not reactive. So 4-methyl-E1 um, and E2, so 4-methyl-estrone and estradiol are no longer active once you can methylate them. So that's that's the power in methylation that happens here. Um, so let's say that I have someone who has a lot of 4, but they're also they're also good methylators. They're, they are also producing a lot of, you know, 4-methyl. I'll still give a little NAC because we know that 100% um, doesn't really happen in biology, right? We don't have, there's going to be some things that are leaking through. So I'll do, I'll do a little bit of NAC as well to kind of downregulate um, for, and then also. So even though they're methylating great, because you can follow that on the HUMAP, you can see their methyl metabolites and they're doing a good job. You're going to be a little bit protective because their overall burden before is is higher. And so why not be careful? Because we know that intermediate is so toxic, the four hydroxies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, Absolutely. that makes a lot of sense. That makes Absolutely. a lot of sense. Yeah. And then, you know, having conversations with individuals who maybe aren't the best best methylator. Um, you know, one thing I really love about the HUMAP itself is that you'll see methylation potential of the four, um, there's four areas we can look. So we can look at, you know, what's happening with the two and the four and how are they being methylated and moved out? Um, and so they don't always line up. You're, you're not going to see straight. Sometimes you do straight across the board. We were really low in those four areas or straight across the board, really high. You're going to kind of get a mix, a mixed picture there. Um, and so I also like to bring in diet you know, it, I'm a big proponent of diet as this is our 24 hour day medicine supplements. They have half-lives, right? They come in and they go out. Uh, but when we think about diet and nutrition and things that our patients can do every single day, um, a lot of talks about, can we increase our dark leafy greens or cruciferous vegetables in general? Um, you know, organ meats, I know that's controversial, but you know, liver is so healthy, um, you know, small amounts. We've got to be careful yeah. Sourcing, right? We have to think about those those places. Mushrooms have uh, a yeah. lot of research in mushrooms is coming up too. So, um, you know, I'll say specifically doing what are you reading about mushrooms? Oh, I I have been interested in. Um, just... I mean, I'm a huge fan. Everything you've just listed, I'm a huge fan of. But I'm curious of what you're what you're thinking well, about regarding mushrooms. Idea that mushrooms were had potential for methylation. Yeah. So that's been a new and. In- interesting um choline folate yeah yeah and it makes a lot of sense you know it's the mechanism of action i wasn't really you know putting together with some of the foods we're eating but um and these are things you can't when you're extracting and putting things you know into you know biopharmaceuticals right you're extracting ingredients i think we're missing we're missing something yeah, yeah we're missing a lot of information i don't i mean we are for sure like we're missing a ton if you think about a fork full of a well-designed salad and the amount of information there versus yeah. you know an isolated uh constituent you know <laughs> it's just there it's not even comparable and to your point 
many exposures, many forkfuls, you know, in a, a, a couple, at least a couple times a day for most of us, a few times for some, you know, of this information, this powerful medicine. I absolutely agree with you. You know, just my own story, I, um, I've been, I, I pay attention to my metabolites as well. And I've got a COMT mutation. So technically I'm, I'm homozygous. So technically it should, it should appear as if I'm my ability to make my, um, two methoxies and four methoxies should be, should be challenged because of this. Um, but following exactly just what you said. So the, the, basically the diet that we've been using in our research to look at DNA methylation, um, has been incredibly helpful for my estrogen metabolism. Like I've got the most exquisite estrogen metabolite, um, panel now than I've you know, in, in my life. And I, I was, we, I was in a lab for my postdoc too many years ago <laughs> at this point, but we released one of the first, if not the first, I think of panel of looking at these advanced metabolites, you know, many moons ago, the lab's not around anymore, but um, yeah, I've been tracking them since then. And they were always difficult for me to dial in. In fact, I leaned heavily on isolated nutrients. We, we prescribe folate and B12 all the time. I leaned heavily on those, but changing it to this very concentrated methyl donor, methyl methylation adapted in this nutrient dense diet that you just described, including liver. Um, but I don't eat that much liver. I actually take it in caps. It gave me the, the like a envious estrogen metabolite panel. I'm, I'm pretty psyched to see and say, so yeah, you know, it would be nice to actually research that, you know, using our program and actually, and, and do something like that. It would be super interesting. I would I'm love an, that. Yeah. Yeah. That. yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, is. do you find now that you are relying less on those single constituents? And- oh, hundred percent. Oh, hundred percent. Absolutely. Are you still utilizing them? Well, in my, when they're indicated in my patients, yeah. of course. Yeah, of course. If you've got somebody who's got macrocytic anemia, or if you've got somebody with a real marked you know, phenotypical presentation of B12 deficient, they've got neuropathy, et cetera. You know, yeah, it's it, it's too important not to utilize those nutrients in pregnancy, you know, pre-pregnancy. There's, there's always a time, but you know, in our study, we increased circulating folate significantly in our study population uh, as compared to the control group and with, without a folate in sight, you know, without a, a vitamin in sight. So it absolutely can be done. And I just read another study, the green med study, um, where they used a polyphenol dense uh, Mediterranean diet and same, you know, they increased circulating folate. And I looked, I just measured my own. I'm so sorry. I, it's my lab time. Everyone, you know, annually, sometimes more, <laughs> annual, I mean, so it's my lab time. I've got all this fresh data in my head from doing my own labs. Um, and my, my circulating folate is, is great. You know, it's in the, it's in the upper limits. And so is my B12 without you know, actually taking those isolated nutrients. I love that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. honestly, it takes, um, this is what I tell my patients all the time is it takes, uh, diligence and just the willingness to change, right. It takes, it's a daily practice for a lot of people. It's a big shift to eat this way. Um, so that's why capsules are just so, you know, Mm -hmm. easy for most people, but like you're saying, you just get so much You know, I did not having, I've got years of data and capsules did not do as good a job as whole food. 
I mean, that's what I've seen in my N of one. And now I'll hopefully I'll gather more. I mean, I've got plenty of patients following this and, you know, I'll just have to kind of go through my database and, 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 and look and see if I can see a pattern in it, but I, I, it, it makes, you know, it's just been really cool to see and it, you know, it would be a nice area for us to dive in. So <laughs> you can go back to doctor's data now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Um, all right. So where are we? We're talking about the urine metabolites. Um, working with the diet, some, some select interventions. I, you know, I have to ask somebody out there is thinking resveratrol wine. Can I just drink a nice, you know, couple of big glasses of red wine and manipulate my estrogen metabolites favorably? What say ye? <laughs> no, I wish I could give a big green light for that, but yeah. honestly, no, um, actually I didn't even mention, but alcohol is one of those risk factors for breast cancer that, you know, I didn't, I didn't touch on. So yeah. It's kind of off the table when we think about it. And honestly, I recently read a study that, you know, came out that said that no amount of alcohol is actually beneficial, even though we have some data that says may potentially heart risk or, you know, this or that. I, you know, no, I wish it sounds I great, but it's a big, <laughs> I know, I know. And there's not that much resveratrol, unfortunately, you know, but um, and it inhibits methylation. So just going back to something we've been focusing on, you know, alcohol specifically inhibits the methylation cycle itself. So, you know, that would be perhaps one of the reasons why we see the associated increased risk. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry. Anybody who like, who's out there drinking, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So what else do I want to ask you here? Additionally, so any other any other tests you want to add beyond the um, hormone testing that we've already talked about? Are there any you know standard labs you want to mention? Uh, we're going to get into talking about gut health, so we'll 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 or we can jump into that now. But talk to me about well, additional think, testing. I think the other hormone that I want to touch on is androgens, and I, you know, we. we all this data and all this research about estrogens and what happens. And, um, but we're actually starting to, you know, pretty new studies. These are things that are kind of in their infancy, but um, realizing that androgens actually play a big role in this. And now, you know, when we think about back to our risk factors of obesity, we can think about metabolic syndrome or not being physically active. What does that equal to fatty tissues, right? Fatty tissues have their own hormones. We've known that for years. Um, and, and we specifically will think about um, an enzyme called aromatase, right? So aromatase in, in men, what we typically see is that their testosterone will actually turn into estrogens. Yes, it'll plummet and then move over into estrone, estradiol. Um, also gynecomastia, right? We can yeah. see that male, male breast development happens. So we know that there's some growth and proliferation happening with aromatase. So, you know, that's one thing to think about, you know, it's interesting. The mechanism for women with aromatase is we have high female population will have high androgens and then we'll also have high estrogens, right? Yeah. So we don't, they don't drop. We continue to stay high. And so, you know, what's interesting here is we can think about how to modulate that. We could use aromatase inhibitors and there's some nice, like five, um, natural ones that we can think of, um, you know, we could say like a, a chrysin, for example, or, um, my favorite resveratrol comes up here, but great seed, you know, EC, ECGC comes up. Um, but really the foundational problem is that we have this 
peripheral fat, these peripheral fatty tissues. Um, so that's one way that androgens are going to impact. Another way that they're going to impact um, is in metabolism. And this was interesting. So there's a study that came out in 2021. It was published. Uh, published in Cancer Epidemiology, Biomarkers and Prevention. What was interesting about it is they used urinary hormones, and this is a nested you know, case control study. So they had pre and post menopausal women. And they were all participants in this um, New York's uh, breast cancer family registry. So we had 64 women that had breast cancer and 124 without. And I wanna remind everybody they all have family history. Um, now, and, and what they found when they were doing this metabolite testing is that it was actually some androgens popped up that were surprising. And that was androsterone, or some people say andros and androsterone, um, and then the 11 um, oxidative process of that, or um, OHAN is how it's kind of written out there, um, O-H-A-N. So it's 11-hydroxy androsterone. And what they found was 70 percent of primary breast cancers had androsterone elevation. So that's interesting. Wow. That's kind of, that stops you. That's yeah. And, and actually in the study higher than the estrogens were, were showing. And then the, um, the androgen 11... metabolites were, were yeah. higher than the estrogens higher. in this 70%. Yes. Wow. And then, um, you know, when we're thinking about risk here, and then they also determined that the high 11 oxygenated form or hydroxy form uh, of that, so 11 um, hydroxy androsterone, that had a 90% increase. So we saw huge um, study that came out. And they this study is interesting because they're also thinking, and, and, and the researchers here were postulating that could we add into risk calculators like um, the Gale model, I'll just kind of throw that out as something to think about for breast health um, and primary care. You can, you know, stratify your patients and, and put them into this calculator. You can find it online. Um, you'll, if you just Google that, you'll find it. Uh, but their question we'll, was- We'll link to it, by the way, on the show notes. And folks, we'll, we'll grab these papers and make sure all of this is on the show notes. In fact, we'll put a, you know, we'll, we'll make sure the WHO map, the test- is on the show notes. I should have said that earlier so that you can actually look at it as we're talking about it here, which, which is helpful. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, they're actually looking to determine if we could increase the efficacy of these. And, and what they saw was, yes, um, adding these androgens actually had a more predictive value of breast cancer looking at in this population. I don't have the stats on how much it increased, but I want to say it was by, uh, maybe even two to 5%, which can be helpful. Um, and that was for those, again, modified or, or moderate to, you know, normal risk women. So that's, that was, yeah. that's pretty interesting when you think about androgens and just their, their metabolites. Yeah. So, you know, what would we do? Again? Yeah. What do we do? Well, let me ask you first, what's on the who map for these metabolites. Yeah. And then yeah. let's talk about what we're doing. And I also want to make sure we talk about how often you're using these tests. How often are you doing a HUMAP? Yeah. So when we think about HUMAP, what's on this test, you're going to see several neighborhoods, I like to call them, of hormones. So we look at, you know, progesterone, it's major metabolites. Um, we're going to look at allopregnanolone. It's going to be involved in that. We are going to look at that's a feel good progesterone, me feel progesterone good. metabolite. We want, that's, we want that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can get your sleepy wine effects from allopregnanolone there, right? Yeah. 
And we're going to think about, you know, androgens. We're talking about them now, but, you know, DHEA, DHEAS is going to be on there. Um, We will see testosterone. Two major metabolites of testosterone, you'll see eticalanolone and drosterone. You'll also see things um, like androstenedione, right? Another big player as far as androgens happening. And then some other smaller metabolites like this 11 um, hydroxylated androsterone. That's on the HUMAP. It is on the HUMAP. Yeah. Wow. So we can, you know, we can look at that. Interestingly enough, same study. <laughs> I was, this is like, you ever find that study and you're like, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, same study looked at cortisol metabolites. Interesting. And, you know, we know the sure we we know stress is important inflammation we see cortisol spiking um not just right not just in breast health but just in in the body in general yeah driving chronic disease for you know anything because we see this the stress involvement but yeah go ahead what did they show so um when they were looking at at these metabolites it showed that if they were doubling the concentrations of these of these metabolites that i'm going to give you some names but it's really the metabolites of cortisol, cortisone, and corticosterone. So THE, THF, 5-alpha THF, and then THA and THB, those were associated with some increased risk. And that was, now in the order that I gave them in, um, 161%, 116%, 75%, 83 and 52%. Massive. Okay. Again, we'll have that studies on the show notes folks, which yeah. is on, which is on the website, actually, drkarafitzgerald.com. You can go to the learn tab, find podcast, and then you'll, you'll pull this up, or you can just click on the link in your email. If, if you get this podcast via your email, um, that's huge. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I want to know what you're doing about it. I yeah. mean, now you, you, you have this data. It's incredibly compelling. Was there anything else you wanted to add to the study before I like? No, no, that's okay. It. That's move it. you towards like let's talk about intervention because those are some really powerful statistics, some some scary statistics, quite frankly. Right, and what I found interesting about it is we are so focused on estrogens and yeah. and gene mutations when there are a lot of other just foundational things within the body that we could address. So what am I doing for cortisol metabolites? Well, first of all, I'm looking at cortisol in general, you know, is it spiking? Is it high? Is that the reason for these metabolites? Sometimes that's the case. Yes, absolutely. You'll see high cortisol, cortisone, and that will equal high metabolites. You would expect that, right? The other things that I'm finding, and this is pretty interesting, is that urinary metabolite testing will actually give you an idea of what's happening like with things like inflammation and thyroid health like are are they metabolizing um i would say more thyroid but then inflammatory uh, processes within the body sometimes you'll see just like relatively normal cortisol in these massive metabolites and so you know you you have a fire it's just getting to where is the fire that we need to put out so I, you know, that those always, those, those higher metabolites always make me kind of go back in and say, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I would say in my practice, you need to kind of ask, you know, how often are you testing? You know, what are you doing? I would say any, any woman with history of breast cancer history, 
or anyone that is like at that five-year survival. I don't really get a lot of active breast cancer. You could test in that population too. But those are women that I really want to see what's happening, not only with the estrogens and how they're metabolizing, but in lieu of these, this study, you know, what's happening overall? Or do we have a lot of androgen metabolites? Is cortisol metabolism, you know, out of control? And if it is, let's let's work to see where we can modify that. And to be completely honest, I will say you know, a big factor in that sometimes is also more testing. <laughs> um, and I, when I say that, I think, you know, specifically about, um, you know, inflammation, I, I don't know about you uh, in your practice, but I like to pair gut testing with that. Um, cause I think I get a lot of information from just gut health and, you know, stool sample can tell me sometimes more about a person than they're going to even give me in their office. So, you know, I also will rely, um, on these two tests together to give me the most information. Awesome. So talk to me about why stool testing gives you more than you might get in a clinical history from the actual patient. <laughs> that's yeah, provocative know, right? <laughs> well, they can't hide anything right yeah. um I see what they're eating I can see if they have digestive fibers that are there I can see you know all all of the things um but the biggest thing I think about you know most most patients again risk factors sedentary lifestyle a standard American diet when we you know high fat really low nutrient dense I'm I'm gonna see that pop up and the way that we see that is um you know, we'll think about dysbiosis in general, right? We'll see, um, I would say it's an emerging field, dysbiosis and how it can relate to breast, breast health. But, you know, dysbiosis in general is, is something that I attack as soon as I see it. And the reason for that is, honestly, our microbes are probably more in charge of us than, you know, we were realizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and And besides breast cancer, so many plethora of other diseases are linked to lack of diversity within the microbiome. Yeah. So that's something that's really important to me. But also, you know, when we have dysbiosis, we have inflammation, we're going to increase our um, macrophages and that's going to increase, you know, our pro-inflammatory situation and increase IGF-1, right? And we know that that's increased in growth um, tumors and metastasis even. And so, I typically will think, okay, when I have someone who's high risk, I need to see what your gut looks like. Um, yeah. So there is actually, and this was, you know, kind of new to me when I got a couple patients that it always happens. You get these patients that come to you and you don't seek them out, but all of a sudden somehow you are this like breast health expert um, because they keep coming to you. So um, it makes you dig in the research and it really does push you as a practitioner. So I, I do love that about medicine, but, um, I remember I stumbled upon a study and it was, it was linking that, that the breast might have their own microbiome. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, how, of course, of course we think about breast being an infant and how you'll pass, you know, your gut bugs onto an infant in that way. Okay. That makes, makes a lot of sense. I didn't actually think about breast tissue themselves having this, you know, microbiota situation happening. I did, I just didn't. Um, and then I, I stumbled upon a research study. I want to say it's 2016. Um, it's a team out of the Mayo Clinic. And, and what was interesting about this study is they were looking at 
benign breast disease tissue and breast cancer tissue. And these were sterile samples. And what the researchers actually ended up finding within this was that they had um, microbial DNA. So they were kind of like, well, where did this microbial DNA come from, from these, you know, yeah. sterile samples? And so, you know, postulating that we do have this microbiome that also exists within in our breast as well. And so that has all often, you know, made me stop and think, well, you know, how, how did it translate from, you know, our gut to our breast? And they don't really know. So the research and, here- And there was a difference, obviously, between- oh, the healthy oh, yeah. tissue and the There's breast a cancer. Between when they didn't look at healthy tissue, they only looked at um, oh, tissue that tissue like uh, benign breast diseases such as like fibrocystic breast disease. Okay. Uh, they also had tissue that had infiltration, so not cancer per se, but like in situ or something in that realm. And it mm -hmm. all had some sort of pathogenic kind of DNA. No real markers between to say that like you can land your hat on, on these specific microbes are involved. Um, but just interesting that they were there and, and that, you know, kind of made my head think like, oh, okay, well I do have a, you know, background in pediatrics and women's health. And if you'll see mastitis sometime will often pop up after breastfeeding and really just the flora there can be an imbalance, right? It doesn't even have to be um, you know, can just be staff, just normal overgrowth of, you know, your own flora. And so I, I started to use that mechanism and think about it a little bit, um, that just the imbalance in that breast microbiome that I wasn't really considering actually could produce disease. And so hmm. let's think about, you know, fast forward a little bit of time, um, we still don't we still don't know how it happens, but there are some postulations out there that we have some communication between the gut and the breast that could be maybe dendritic cells, um, but also could be due to leaky barriers, and that is what allows you know some of these more inflammatory microbes to move in throughout the body. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, inflammation. If we can think about how to control that. Um, look at all the hosts of things that we can potentially have, you know, a mark on. I, um, there was a, there was a study that came out looking at a primate breast microbiome. And basically mm -hmm. the, the researchers were trying to postulate, could we manipulate the internal, you know, environment? Could we utilize things from the gut? Would that help with that change? And so what they did was they looked at 40 primates and they fed a Mediterranean diet and then they fed like a high fat diet, right? So it's like Mediterranean versus standard American. Perfect. Um, and what they saw was that the Mediterranean and they, and they took breast tissue samples. Sorry. I hate sometimes reading this research, but it's very, it's very informative. And, you know, baseline levels, you kind of see similar, similar patterns. They, you know, increased fat in one and they gave a Mediterranean diet in the other. And what you see is lactobacillus, which is, you know, huge and foundational within, in the breast actually bumps up about 10 times that of, of the fat. And in so the Mediterranean diet. So you see more of the, the good guys you increase do. on the Mediterranean diet. And this is in the actual breast tissue. This is not the surface. 
Right. This is actual breast tissue samples. So that That's was interesting. It is really interesting. And so, you know, it gives me an idea that if I can focus, if I can focus more on making sure that my internal environment of my patients is where it needs to be. And that is going to be, you know, making sure that I'm doing things like increasing short chain fatty acids. Right. And, and that study demonstrates that it's through the alimentary canals, the influence of the food changing that, yes. the gut that's having the systemic influence on and, and, you know, radically altering the breast microbiome, which until this conversation, I didn't know exists, existed. And so we'll try to folks, we'll track down as many of those papers again and pop them on the show yep. notes at again, drcarafitzgerald.com. My, my team has asked me to actually say the website. I say show notes all the time without actually telling people where they can find them. <laughs> this is my first podcast where I'm saying you. the website. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, you know, thinking about primate studies, they're helpful. They give us a lot of information. What we know, you know, what do we know in, in human studies? Is, yeah. is Other than that 2016 study, is there more research in the breast microbiome in humans? There, there is. And yeah. in fact, you know, I looked, I found, you know, over, I would say over 50 you know, papers, you're, you're, you're going to have to kind of go through some of them are looking at cancer. Some of them are looking at benign breast disease. One thing you can kind of land your hat on as far as human breast tissue, um, you know, and the influence of the microbiota, we'll have to go back to the gut for a second. And, you know, we'll think about beta glucuronidase. So yeah, we have, you haven't said that. And I think it's an important point. So, you know, recycling estrogens, you know, recirculating, recycling, putting them back into circulation and this is mediated through the gut. Go ahead. Yeah. And you know, I, I think, you know, when we do research in the astrobilum, I, I I didn't have this in my mind. You know, it's been in the last, I don't know, six-ish years that we've kind of, oh, realized that this is where some of these circulating estrogens can come from. So, you know, that's something that we can hang our hat on as far as what's happening in actual humans. Um now let's can you postulate that that could also potentially be happening in the breast? We don't have that information, but that would be very interesting right. to see. Um, but you can measure beta-glucuronidase in stool testing. And so that's another thing that I will find in stool testing that if I have elevated beta-glucuronidase, it's almost like I get relieved because it's a slam dunk. Not that it's you know easy to treat by any means, right? Because it's going to be increasing that... Um, you know, soluble fiber and making sort of digestions well, but that I, oh, I have a reason, right. I have a reason for these estrogens and and now we can have a more serious conversation. What we do also know and looking at just all those studies is that we can see differences between our standard breast tissue itself, which is typically some sort of a phyla of um, actinobacteria or I guess bifido would be the, the one that most people are going to recognize that bifidobacteria. Mm-hmm. And then we also see formicutes. So that's the lactobacillus. Um, and so in healthy breast tissue, those tend to be the dominant micro. Bifido and lacto. Yeah. And then when we think about tissues that are cancerous, even inflammatory, so like those benign breast diseases yep. that are inflammatory. Yeah. Um, you'll also see that's where you get those proteobacteria and proteobacteria are inflammatory, <laughs> but there are also things you can see things like staphylococcus overgrowth as well. And that corny bacteria. So 
we see that we're having infiltration of, of these microbes within the, the breast microbiome. Um, what we also know is that our gut bacteria, they're just so, they're so smart, right? Like um, when we have inflammation, you know, inflam inflammation, we have these toll-like receptors that are there, right? And that activates NFK beta, and we'll see things like IL-6 or those inflammatory, you know, interleukins, right? 6, 12, 17, those happen. That's present in all inflammatory tissue. So again, not just breast, but most, I'll say most. Systemide. 100%, right? But but those are really important markers to look at. Um, so like we're thinking, when we think about what's happening when we have inflammation, when we have dysbiosis, even within the, the breast, you of course, you're going to see tumor growth. That makes a lot of sense because we have the initiation from those you know, inflammatory interleukins that are there as well. Super, super interesting stuff. Um, it certainly, I mean, it just, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a great conversation. It's, it, it underscores the importance of gut health, you know, and it, it just really brings it home. Gut health being essential for, of course, whole body health. I mean, we know this, but this really connects it intimately to breast health that it's, as you said, you know, as important Maybe it's more important, really, I think you alluded to almost than, um, that, well, you may derive more more information from it than the clinical history. I don't, it doesn't supplant the clinical history, but it's just a huge essential piece of information. So thanks for bringing these, these studies to our attention. Really, really cool stuff. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's kind of fun to be a nerd, right? <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. I, you know, I'll tell you something and then we, we probably need to start to wrap up, but, um, a study that moved me, you know, and it's an, it's not a, it's not a new study. And now I'm going to, we'll have to pop it into the show notes showed the aromatase gene. So SIP 19 is the, is the, is the gene that produces the enzyme aromatase. Um, there, and we can, we can increase aromatase production if we're you know, arachidonic acid dominant. So if you've got a lot of omega-6s and then you're driving that arachidonic to, to your super exquisitely pro-inflammatory prostaglandins, and this is any form of inflammation. These are, th these prostaglandins are the first step, you know, regardless of what, or the leukotrienes, they're, they're, they're next door cousins. They're, they're both coming from arachidonic. They're turning the volume up, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, potently, potently pro-inflammatory. And they start driving the car of inflammation in the body. Well, PG-1 actually upregulates transcription of aromatase on the aromatase gene. And it does so differently than other transcription factors that turn on aromatase. So what this, what this suggests, so there's a proximal and distal region that, that on the gene that can increase. And this, this is true in, I think in gene transcription in general, this proximal and distal region. And when you turn gene activation on at proximal, the, the protein that's produced behaves differently, even though it's, though it's the same thing than the distal. Does that make sense? So no. when you turn on aromatase via a, an inflammatory signal, the aromatase that's produced, even though it's structurally identical, 
behaves differently in the body. I mean, is that mind blowing or what? Yeah. Active. Is it more, has more affinity? That's okay. I'm going to read, I'm going to have to read this. Yeah. You'll have to track it down. It's, and, and I don't know, does it, yeah. What, what is it? What, what is the downstream influence? Why is it more pro-inflammatory? Yeah. Does it have, I mean, you would think that it would be slightly structurally different if it did have, I mean, it must, if it have, if it has more affinity, I don't know, maybe it's electrons. I'm not entirely sure, but it was a study that really deeply influenced me and hit home the importance of arresting inflammation uh, potently when we're looking at, uh, you know, the behavior of estrogens, the pro, the pro the potential pro-inflammatory behavior of estrogen. And this is true in men and women, you know, yeah. this is for men and women, this, this aromatase production. And so thinking about fish oil and increasing our omega-3s, like all just going back to that, is going to influence estrogen production and, you know, likely the metabolites that we've been talking about. So it's just, it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle. Um, and we have a whole arsenal of beautiful botanicals that can help turn the volume down on those pro-inflammatory prostaglandins and leukotrienes as well, you know, like curcumin and ginger and boswellia, et cetera. But um, just there's so much that we can do to have um, a really potent, powerful balancing effect. Um, and you really hit it home today very nicely, you know, talking about those metabolites, really hitting home the importance of looking at the androgen metabolites, all of them. And I love that your panel is so comprehensive and bringing, you know, just really bringing it home with gut health and why that's exquisitely essential, you know, now that we you know, that I'm understanding. And I'm sorry if everybody else out there was in the know that we have a breast microbiome. I, I actually didn't read that paper. It's not, uh, it's not something that I was aware of. It's just, it's incredibly interesting. So um, we are coming to the end of our time today. And I just want to ask you if there's anything else that you wanted to add, is there anything that, that, that we're leaving out here that you think is important to kind of put an exclamation point on the end of this conversation or, you know, resources we'll direct people to, we'll put stuff on our show notes, but just really any, any summary thoughts, any final thoughts? You know, I think it's important to use testing as just markers for individual health, right? And, and whether you're using salivary testing or uh, the hormone testing, as far as HUMAP, um, I think that's going to be essential for your breast health patients, even breast cancer, or, or just maybe some history and some risk factors that you've discovered. Um, and then, you know, again, we, we talked to, just talked about gut health, but the GI 360, it's going to give you, you know, a great abundance and diversity. It's going to let you see what's kind of in, in the microbiome, but it's also going to allow you to see if there's any pathogenic bacteria that's there. It's one of the coolest dual tests out there, actually, you know, but yeah, hands off to you guys. I thought you did a good job. Are there any natural agents that can potentially, you know, kill, you know, these uh, parasites or, you know, whatever, whatever funky bug we have found, you know, that that's really fun. Um, we're going to see all of the short chain fatty acids that you can, can think about, you know, I say, I, I tend to lean on butyrate. That's the one that I'm working on as far as yeah. sites. Right. Um, and then inflammatory markers, 
that's lysozyme general, but you can also see, do we have IBD going on? Again, when we're thinking about breast health, let's let's broaden the, the focus a little bit more and let's think about total body health. And really, I, I postulate that most disease that we think of is just an imbalance. Like we've just gotten really out of, out of balance. Um, and, and we can kind of move things forward. Just those foundations of health, you know, as a naturopath, I, I think we were, you know, I always like to go back to the tried and true, right? We need to move our bodies. We need to eat whole foods, um, and try to reduce or or eliminate alcohol, right? And and we need to sleep so we can recover. And and you know, is medicine that simple? Yes, it can be. Um, it, again, it's just diligence and focus, and and just making sure that you're utilizing what you have in front of you as far as a patient. And then once you have metrics, you're able to see change. I think that also excites your patient. Yes. As well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ruth Hobson, it's really nice to chat with you today. I'm so glad you joined me here on New Frontiers. I think this is going to really, you know, be a compelling conversation for our listeners. Thanks for having me.